Welcome back. And our first question has to do about music. It says, uh, how does the religious Christian praise music strike you as acts of deity worship in view of a bunch of Bible texts that are referenced here and Ellen White quote and so forth? Uh, I would encourage the person who asked this to go to our website, type in under the search engine, music. You will find there's a blog, Music in the Brain. And I go down a lot of studies, and I go down scripture and other um, uh, references uh, about music. Music affects us uh, like everything affects us. Words affect us. Uh, Things you watch affect you. Music affects you. Video music affects you in a different way than audio music does because you're hitting different circuits and so forth. And so the ultimate issue with music is going to be the the message that the music is bringing. Is Is the music bringing truth or is the music bringing lies? That is the, the primary issue. But, e, but then, then the, the, what's the word, the mechanics of the music, maybe that's the word I'm looking for, can have an impact as well. For instance, if you're playing a classic hymn, Rock of Ages, but you blast it so loud that it goes above 80 decibels or something, you, you're actually causing uh, acoustic neuron damage, and that, that, that actually activates stress circuits, and so it's actually physiologically harmful to do that. So even if it's true, if you blast it so loud, it, it, it can be harmful. So mechanically, we can do things with music that are harmful. And so there's a lot of elements when we talk about music. It's the quality of the music, what the music is, what the message. The, for me, it historically has always been, though, two elements, the, the message itself, and then the then the, the 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 delivery. How loud is it? If it's too loud, even if it's a good music, it can be harmful to us to be in that environment. It's stressful to us. And I would also point out there's a lot of arguments uh, people have. Well, this this contemporary style it sounds like uh, you know, it sounds like modern non-Christian music. You can't tell the difference unless you listen to the words. That's exactly right. If you uh, and and most people who say that would say, well, how would you feel about you know a, a great Christian hymn like uh, Martin Luther wrote, uh, "Mighty Fortress is Our God." Oh yes, that would be great. Let's sing that. Well, do you know when he wrote it? He wrote it to the tune of a barroom song. It was a common tune sang in the bars. And the reason he put the words to it is because the common people couldn't read and write. You couldn't give them a hymnal and have them read things, and they couldn't read music, but they knew the tune. And so because they knew the tune, he gave them new words to sing with the tune that they already knew. And so uh, I think we get into a lot of uh, um, you know, silliness when we talk about the, the style of music rather than the message of the music. Can I just add, we saw an interesting program about synesthetes, which have connections between their various senses. And one woman said, when I hear beautiful music, I see pink ribbons, you know, like the Olympic girls going like this. But when she hates going into nightclubs, because when she goes in there, she gets a terrible taste in her mouth and black squares all in her vision. And it's just a person who experiences all of these things together. So synesthesia is people who have miswiring, cross-wiring of their normal senses. So they will see colors, excuse me, see sounds or taste colors or things like this. They, 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 where the, the various sensory perceptions are being stimulated by other sensory input. So when you're hearing sounds, you're getting flavors, this type of thing, Cause, because the, the sensory input is cross-wired on a different pathway than it should be on. Okay? It tastes like cake. Like cake. Yeah. Yes. 
So th- this, and, these, and, and, and there is nothing to be learned from that in regards to whether the music is virtuous. If somebody said, when I listen to Baroque music, I see beautiful colors. When I listen to rock music, I see dark and ugly things. Uh, that has nothing to do with whether the music is good or bad. It has to do with how their brain processes things. And some other synesthesia could do it just the opposite. They hear rock music as pink colors, and they see Baroque music as black and dark. So you can't take a, uh, an individual example like that as an evidence that somehow that means one is good or one is bad. I mean, people have had experiences like that on acid trips, too. Yeah. <laughs> Can a person who passes away with sickness like cancer, heart disease, lung disease be in the first resurrection? The method of one's death has no bearing on uh, which resurrection they come up in. You come up in the resurrection based on the quality of your character and whether you have been reborn to Jesus Christ. That determines the resurrection you come up in. Uh, someone raised Ezekiel 38, please, please that the wicked would be dragged away with hooks in their jaw. It's very violent. I went and read the chapter and couldn't make sense enough to respond. Would you please share your insights on this chapter? If they're using Ezekiel 28 to support his position, it's because their position can't be supported. Ezekiel 38 no commentary has that, that I could find has any evaluation of any kind on this. This is a very, very symbolic, and, and the, it, there's, there's really no consensus on what it means. It is, it, 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 and, and if you read the Adventist Bible commentary, it says, no inspired revelation has unpacked the meaning of this prophecy. And they have lots of different speculations, but they say it's all speculation. So uh, you should not rely on Ezekiel 28 to make your position. There's much other revealed truths in God's word that you can have reliable stuff upon. I will tell you, oh, and the other thing is, it's symbolic. It is one of the s- symbolic, like, like, like when you read about beasts in Revelation. They're not literal beasts. They symbolize something else. And, and Ezekiel 38 is very symbolic in this way as well. Did Ellen White refer to the seal of God being Sabbath-keeping? Uh, I truly don't mean to be disrespectful and appreciate your teaching so much, but sometimes I think you tend to downplay the importance of Sabbath-keeping. Please elaborate on the Sabbath and if it will play a role in the last days. Thank you. Sabbath, do you notice how this is phrased? Your Sabbath-keeping will be a sign that you are holy. Your Sabbath-keeping is the sign. That's what it says in Ezekiel. I gave you your Sabbath-keeping as a sign. Oh, no, God gave us the Sabbath as a sign. Oh, okay. So, so the idea of Sabbath-keeping. Well, all the commandment actually says, which was added later, do you understand in, in Genesis there was no Sabbath commandment? There was a Sabbath created. There was no Sabbath commandment. Or uh, Sabbath-keeping in the sense of the legalist, that's true. There was Sabbath experience with God. The very first full day they had was resting in their love relationship with God on Sabbath. But Sabbath-keeping. So when you answer questions like this, the first question you always have to ask is, What law lens? What law lens? Are you viewing the Sabbath through a human law system of made-up rules? Or are you viewing it as design law? And if you view it as a sign law, so I don't want to diminish the importance of the Sabbath. I think it has a, a vital importance, and it's going to be hugely important in the end time. I mentioned it in class a little bit. 
Uh, But many Adventists have been taught that the final issue in the cosmic conflict will be over which day of the week they go to worship services upon. By the way, on the commandment, as I was going to say a moment ago, what does the commandment say when it was given many years later? It wasn't in Eden, but it says, in it thou shalt not work. Thou, nor the son, nor the daughter, the manservant, nor the maidservant, nor the cattle, nor the stranger within thy gates, for in six days the Lord made heaven, and so on. Okay? So the command is, thou shalt not work. Does it tell you what that work is? Does it tell you that you shouldn't uh, set the table, or, or clear the dishes? Or brush your teeth. Or brush your teeth, or... Or uh, it doesn't actually tell you what the work is. It just tells you you shouldn't work. This, get your sheep out of the ditch. Get your sheep out of the ditch. Pull grains of head, grains of, of, of wheat on Sabbath. Uh, is that harvesting, which, which was work? It doesn't tell you. The, the principle then, even in the commandment, is every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. What is the work? Uh, what, is the, what is the Adventist pastor paid to do? What's his work? So he should never do that on Sabbath, because that's work. Okay, you, you see my point? Okay? It's not defined. First off, it's not defined. If you approach it legalistically, you've already gone off into Satan's camp of understanding reality. You end up making hundreds of laws of what you can and can't do. On the Sabbath. So in Israel, I understand if you go to Jerusalem, that on Sabbath, um, the elevators in the buildings are programmed to stop at every floor, up and down, all day long. Because they can't spark a fire, so they can't push the electrical button, and so they have to have the, the, floor, the, the elevator stop at every floor automatically so that the, the people who are observing Sabbath won't break the Sabbath by pushing a button. Because it would be work to start a fire, and that's a, starting a spark. So when you understand God's laws are design laws, then you understand that this, these are the protocols upon which he builds reality. The Jews had the Bible Sabbath. The Jews that killed Christ had the Bible Sabbath, the right day of the week, yes? yes. But they understood it through imposed law, rule enforcement, legalism. And thus they crucified the Lord of the Sabbath by using the power of the state and then wanted him off the cross to keep the day. So understand, having the right day of the week and obeying it behaviorally by avoiding a whole long list of works does not make you a friend of God and does not give you the seal of God. What does is having the law of God written on the heart. It says in Hebrews 8, 10, over my law upon your heart and mind, of which the Sabbath is a sign or a symbol or a representation and evidence. And so one of the Adventist reformers, known as Ellen White, wrote in Testimonies of the Church, volume 6, page 353, the following. All through the week, we are to have the Sabbath in mind and to be making preparation to keep it according to the commandment. We are not merely to observe the Sabbath as a legal matter, We are to understand its spiritual bearing upon all the transactions of life. All who regard the Sabbath as a sign between them and God. Notice, the Sabbath is a sign. It didn't say all who regard your Sabbath keeping as a sign. No, the Sabbath is the sign. 
as a sign between them and God, showing that he is the God who sanctifies them, will represent the principles of his government. They will bring into daily practice the laws of his kingdom. Daily it will be their prayer that the sanctification of the Sabbath may rest upon them. Every day they will have the companionship of Christ and will exemplify the perfection of his character. Every day their light will shine before others to do good works. The point is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. If you do wickedness on the Sabbath, have you made the Sabbath less holy? If you do only righteous, virtuous worship of the creator God on the Sabbath, have you made the Sabbath more holy? Yes or no? No. So you actually are not keeping the Sabbath holy. You're keeping yourself holy. Can you keep yourself holy one day in seven? No. That's why you remember the Sabbath all week long in preparation for what it represents and symbolizes. And the weekly Sabbath is a gift from God made at the end of creation week for human beings. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, and stands as an eternal sign of our creator and his design law methods. The Sabbath was created by God in the midst of Satan's rebellion when God presented the truth of who he is creator in love, created an ecosystem, an entire globe, an entire world, an entire planet, all built to operate on love with an inter, uh, interactive and interdependent love-giving relationship of all the ecosystem and shared creative power with a new creation and authority to govern and dominion with a new creation. And after showing his methods and principles and how he does, God rested. God ceased using power. He did not force compliance. No compliance committee. He did not make Lucifer bow down, but left all his intelligent creatures free. And the weekly Sabbath is proof, its existence is proof that Satan lied. God's law is not made up rules that he enforces with external punishment. God's laws are the design protocols that reality operate upon, and he leaves us free. And thus, true Sabbath observers love the, 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 the Sabbath like a, a true patriot loves the flag and will honor the flag and wouldn't desecrate it. And we won't desecrate it. But we also won't use the flag, the American flag, to promote communism. It's antithetical to the principles of freedom that the American flag stands for. And we won't use the Sabbath to promote an arbitrary God who makes up rules and legally enforces them and will punish you for keeping the wrong day. I think of the Sabbath, too, as along, along the lines of a wedding ring. The wedding ring is not a marriage. It is not even the wedding. It's a sign that you are married to this particular person is who you love. And it means something to you. And I think it's genius that God picked a day for that instead of an item. And notice the significance. Really meditate on this significance that what sets the Sabbath apart is not creative power. Many people say it's a a sign of his creation. And he is the creator, there's no question. And the commandment says, for in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, and all that in them is. But that's not where it stops. In six days, he created, he used power. The commandment says, but on the seventh day, he rested. What actually makes the seventh day unique is not the exercise of power. It's the cessation of the exercise of power. That God doesn't use power to dominate his creation. It's the exact opposite of an imperial dictator. That's what makes the Sabbath beautiful. And yet many Adventists and Jews teach that he's powerful creator and he'll one day punish people who break a Sabbath. So let's say take the very evidence to show he's not this way and turn him into a God that is how Satan describes him to be. And if you want a quotation for that, 
This is out of uh, The Sabbath in Scripture and History, published in 1982 uh, by, uh, by the Review Publishing, I believe. It's a Seventh-day Adventist theologian who wrote this. In an arbitrary manner, God appointed that on the seventh day we should come and rest with his creation in a particular way. He filled this day with the content that is uncontaminated by anything related to the cyclic nature, uh, cyclic changes of nature and movements of the heavenly bodies. The, the content is then is the idea of the absolute sovereignty of God, sovereignty unqualified by any indirect cognizance of natural movements. Uh, as the Christian takes heed of the Sab- Sabbath day and keeps it holy, he does so purely in answer to God's command. It is often more of test of loyalty to God than any, than any other. It's a rule. He's made it because he can, because he's powerful, and you're required to obey. Test. It's a test. This is, this is Romanism. This is taking the, it's like taking the U.S. flag and waving it in teaching. It teaches communistic principles and no freedom. It would be an abuse and a misrepresentation. And may I add, too, that then this is my take on it, but I think God could have created everything in a day, but instead he created it in seven days, representing the 7,000 years on earth, six days of work, 6,000 years of our misery, and a thousand years of millennium. So I think in a way it's a prophecy saying at the beginning of creation, this is what's going to happen in this experiment. Six six thousand years of this and a thousand years of this, each represented by a day. So the seal of God, according to both scripture, scripture says you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. And Ellen White says seal of God is being so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, you cannot be moved. And how do you become settled into the truth? Intellectually, you understand it. The spirit of truth comes. Spiritually, your heart is uh, settled into the motives of God. The Holy Spirit comes. So it's the Holy Spirit that settles us intellectually and spiritually. And that's what the Bible says. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's an intellectual settling into the truth, but intellectually and spiritually, the Sabbath is a sign of those methods and principles of God. It's an evidence of how he works, and thus we celebrate it. Revelation 13 and 17 teaches teaching is simply clearly evident, reveals Christ and Godhead, their style and governing in contrast to Satan and his methods, and so forth. I now agree with your take, and I note the article. Okay, so he's talking about our document, the, the, the Beast of Revelation 13 and 17, and he agrees with our position. Um, he notes the article in the Catholic publication where they are asked what the inscribed on the imprature, imprimatur of the papal tiara and confirm it as vicarious fili dei, uh, and then they give a reference for that from 1915. And then suggesting perhaps that, um, that this, uh, this article that I referenced from a Ministry Magazine is, is just another red herring. Um, the point of the whole vicarious fili day and suggesting that this vicarious fili day, uh, uh, using the Roman numerals uh, on, the, on the tiara, thus um, uh, adding up to 666, it refers there. It, you don't even have to have this. If you read the text of the scripture, the 666 number does not refer to the first beast of Revelation 13. The 666 number refers to the lamb-like beast of Revelation 13. It doesn't refer to the first, it refers to the second. And thus, if you understand the first beast of Revelation um, 13 to refer to the papacy, then the 666 doesn't refer to that anyway because it refers to the beast with lamb-like horns. So it doesn't apply. 
When people in the Bible were asked by God to stone the sinner to death or kill the entire community, would these people suffer PTSD like a murderer if they ever, if they ever do or did that? I know the Bible never mentions that. What are your thoughts? Did God himself destroy the people? Uh, God, God did himself destroy the people directly. Let the earth swallow them up, alive, the flood, etc. So why would you think he wanted his beloved people to carry out these horrific tests? So the Bible says we know in part, and we prophesy in part, okay? So whatever I tell you will be a part answer. It won't be all the elements and all the reasons. There are multi-level reasons for this. First, it was never God's intention they participate. He was going to send the hornet before. He was going to send as far as occupying the land, and he was going to drive them out, and bit by bit as they gave up, they would never have to go to war and they never have to wipe anybody out. Uh, that, was, that was his plan. They didn't like that plan. And so um, God then told them, okay, then wipe them out, men, women, and children, do it all. Why? Because think, think it through with me now. Would God want them to have the most violence or the least violence? Would he want them to have the most numbers of people that suffer the violence or the least numbers that suffer it? And the most numbers who, in this particular case, are perpetrating the violence or the least numbers? How would you get, from God's perspective, the least number of people? If you have a group that are going to go in and they're going to go to war, how will you get the least number of people killed by war and the least number of people damaged by war? If you're God, how do you do that? Kill them all or just kill a few? Which gets the least? Kill them all. Kill them all. Why? Because you get it over in one generation. Only one generation of people die. Only one generation of people have PTSD-like symptoms or any of that trauma. And then from that point forward, for the next thousands of years, you have peace in the Middle East, and you're not having every generation damaged by war and conflict, which has happened because they didn't do it his way, didn't do it his way as they instructed him because they didn't listen to his first way. They still didn't do that. And thus, we have a perpetual 4,000-year war going on, and every generation is still being damaged, even to this day. Millions and billions, perhaps more, have been harmed by this thing. So one reason why he instructed them to, to wipe them all out at this point in time was to minimize the, the, the harm that was going to come doing it their way. Other reasons. Why would he tell them, though, okay, that's, that's wiping out the... What about, though, the sinner that they tell them to stone? First off, why did they have a death penalty? And I've given this story many times. I'll tell you the reason why they had the death penalty, and then why did they told, told them to do it. Uh, in, um, when, when, after Desert Storm, Desert Shield, when the United States uh, occupied and governed for a period of time Baghdad, we had, we had a, a green zone, which was governed by a U.S.-appointed governor of the city for a while. And during that period of time, it was reported in NPR News that a local grocery store was firebombed, and the owner and two employees were killed in the firebomb. The investigation revealed that the reason the store was firebombed, not, not by Americans and not by anti-American protest, it was because a local mullah, um, Islamic cleric, put out a religious order that in the grocery store, celery stalks were not to be displayed next to tomatoes. And the reason was because it could be misunderstood as a part of a male anatomy. But in this store, celery stalks were displayed in the produce section next to tomatoes, and so some follower firebombed the store, killing the store owner and two uh, employees. In other words, in their mind, to put celery stalks next to tomatoes was a crime punishable by death. That's what they thought. Now, if you're the governor... At this time, and it happened while the U.S. governor was there, you're the governor of Baghdad. You find this happens. In your mind, not theirs, in your mind, which is a more serious crime, driving drunk or 
celery stalks next to tomatoes. What do you think is more serious? <laughs> driving drunk. Now, if you're the governor and you want them to take driving drunk as serious as celery stalks next to tomatoes, if you want them to think it's at least that serious, what penalty are you going to have to give it? It's going to have to be a death penalty. That's why God gave death penalties for a lot of stuff when they came out of Egypt. They thought minor crimes. He also um, tried to reduce it from, uh, at the same time in Baghdad, there's another story where a boy was out playing, threw a rock, hit some goat, and blinded the goat's eye. The owner of the goat killed the boy. This was also reported. God said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, limb for a limb, life for life. You can't kill the boy who puts out a goat's eye, but you can put out his eye. <laughs> Perhaps, maybe not a goat, maybe only a human eye. I, don't, I didn't read that detail, but it was an eye for an eye. He's also trying to limit, but they had this real idea. Human life was very, very cheap for the slave. And they thought that justice was, was inflicting punishment and, and harsh punishment including death. So this is why there's a lot of death penalty. Next question then would be, why would he tell them to do it? Because he's trying to move them away from doing it. I want you to think this through. In our society, we have capital punishment still in this country. What would it be like? Is it, is, is this, are these two things the same? You sit in a jury box, you hear the evidence, you convict somebody of the crime, and you convict them to death. And then they're taken away. You never see them again. Some other person who uh, controls the prison and whatever puts them in and, and some other person kills them versus if you condemn them to death, you have to go out, look them in the eye, pick up a stone, and you have to watch them cry and scream while you kill them. Are those the same? No. So the reason God instructed them to do it was to hopefully lead them to stop doing it. That was the purpose to have mercy, to say, no, you know what? I'm going to forgive this person. I'm not going to demand death. They can, just, they can just have some other punishment, some other consequence we can bring, but I'm not going to kill them for it. This was the goal, and this is the reason why, as I understand it. But, they, but, some, but some people hardened them hard. Not, every, not everyone would respond that way, and even today's society, some would relish the opportunity to kill somebody. And that shows the hardness of their heart. But, but, but many of the people would have, would have learned an experience like that. Saul did. Saul learned when Stephen was being stoned. Didn't he? Yes, yes he did. We are told that the Israelites were baptized in the Red Sea, but they did not get wet. So what were they immersed in? This is a great example of how the Bible uses object lessons to teach principles. It wasn't about actually immersing them in water. It was, it was the, the, the description. They were coming out of Egypt, which is symbolic of a people in the world of sin. They walked through a miraculous new way that was opened for them by God, and they came out in the promised land. We live in the world of sin. We walk through a way opened for us by Christ to come out the other side in the promised land, and our walk or our journey goes through the watery baptism, so to speak, of Jesus Christ when we have a new life. And it's just symbolism to try and teach a bigger lesson. It wasn't about literally getting them wet. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much 
for the, for the reality of how you've built your universe and the fact that you will step down and teach us like children with so many metaphors, parables, object lessons, similes to help us try to understand the reality. We pray your Holy Spirit of truth will help open our mind to the, to the way things actually work in your kingdom, that we can discern past the symbols to know the truth as you, as you have revealed it to us in Jesus. We pray in your holy name. Amen.